Hello everyone, we're about halfway through the year 2020 and as a society we have been through a lot. COVID-19 has been a mixed bag of fear, uncertainty, panic, and dangerous hubris. I'm hopeful that there are people and organizations that are actually laying down the foundation for better healthcare and economic systems. As a reminder, please wash your hands appropriately. Wear a mask when you're around other people. We all need to take these extra precautions to ensure our communities are safe. Thank you for listening. On today's show, I speak with Stephen Mead, who is a self-proclaimed lifelong entrepreneur and calls himself the bullseye guy for his bullseye approach to focusing on specific goals and objectives. We talk about his experience with emergency asset management software during crises and disasters. He claims to have built an enterprise software solution using blockchain to help large organizations trade and sell their goods and services. I enjoyed Stephen's enthusiastic stories of perseverance in his career. He seems to be pretty politically connected and even calls out presidential senior advisor Jared Kushner and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo in this episode. If you guys are listening, let me know what you think. I'm curious to hear what you all think about this episode. Your feedback helps improve the show. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is a serial entrepreneur and fellow podcaster, Stephen Mead. In 2017, he founded Moneta Pro, which is a business-to-business exchange that allows companies to list goods and services for sale for credit. Uh, The company is based in Malta, and Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Ray. Appreciate it. So, Stephen, if you could just give a bit of a background about yourself for the audience so they have some context about who you are. Sure. Um, the story I, I use is called the arc of entrepreneurship. Um, I joke that I've never had a job and people always laugh about that. But I I learned in college I was unhirable and I didn't really know why until many years later. My mind's just wired very differently. But uh, I did retail stores in college when I was 18. Uh, I wrote three books when I was 20 and I had an infomercial called Give Yourself Credit. So I learned a lot about direct response in television. My media buyer actually was Kevin Harrington, who was one of the first guys on Shark Tank. Hmm. Uh, but but the arc of my entrepreneurial career started when I was 22. I went to work at Travelers Group. And over the course of six and a half years, I read 357 books. Wow. And when you say that, people are like, just like you, wow, that's so, it's it's a book a week. So it's not that many. If you commit to reading one book every week, six and a half years, it's 350 books. But I was able to dissect the elements of all of these different sales techniques and motivational speakers into something I eventually created called a bullseye belief system. So I created a 10 step system about how to 
build companies and train people. And I used that in 1996. I started my first e-commerce company uh, that we took public in 99. My goal was to, to have a billion dollar company when I turned 33. And the day I turned 33, the company was worth close to a billion dollars. But about being the bullseye and the target, I asked for the wrong thing. So having a company worth that was irrelevant to my net worth. I only owned 8% of the public company. I couldn't sell. There was a tech bubble, you know? Mm -hmm. So you kind of learn these things about being specific, uh, but that company's what went on to become PayPal. And since then I started, I tried to do a global currency in the year 2000. Nobody understood it. The software we built, we actually launched into September 11th. Uh, Hold on, really quick. I'm just gonna, gonna huh? ask you a question though. So you said uh, the work that you were doing with that original company, it turned into PayPal. Are you saying the code that was written for, that you wrote or that your team wrote? Well, technically there's not a lot of code for PayPal. Um, so if we wanna be pedantic about it, in 1996, yeah, I wanted time. somebody to build, <laughs> no, it's fine. I want somebody to build a website. I'd heard about these website things, process credit card orders and send me checks and mailing labels. I wanna talk on stage and cash checks. It's what my 800 service did at the infomercial. I didn't answer the phone, the call center did. And they took out a fee and sent me checks and mailing labels. In 1996, that technology didn't exist. There were no websites, there was no e-commerce, there were no shopping carts. There were ways to process credit cards online. So I ended up creating one of the, not the first, but probably one of the world's first shopping carts. And I was using my merchant account, my credit card account to process credit card orders. March of 1996, August, Visa shut me down for illegally factoring credit card orders. I didn't know it was illegal. I, I, th I thought, oh, I can process. So I had to fly to Connecticut and convince Visa to change the laws to make me the first master merchant in the world for credit card processing. So what PayPal technically is, is a master merchant. Elon had X-Bank. Mm -hmm. Max Lipton and Peter Thiel were trying to figure out how to email money. You can't email money without a master merchant to process the credit cards and take all the risk. I was the one who created that in 96. And I know that because I had to beg Visa. Actually, I didn't beg them. I convinced them I was like an 800 service. Hmm. I told them, oh, that internet thing will never work. That's like the seventh way you can get paid. So it wasn't technically code. It was the merchant agreements and the way we learned to process credit card orders online. Okay. That's what X-Bank became for PayPal as the master merchant. I see. Okay. Interesting. Um, we can move on from there. Yeah. And the timing, I mean, it, we went public in 99. And like I said, we were close to a billion dollars. It blew up in 2000. And when PayPal sold, they did they did it smartly. They sold for cash to eBay at about a billion three. So our, our market caps were parallel. We just did a public transaction and it, it just failed in the market when the market collapsed. Um, but to fast forward, I tried to build a global currency for business payments. Nobody understood it. The software we launched became something after November or September 11th called EAMS, the Emergency Asset Management System. That's what will catch us up to relevancy today. So 2001 to five, I became a global expert in disaster management, um, built a mobile tech company, didn't work. We, we're the only company in the world that can insert audio messages. You asked me a question, Ray, I might circle back to, we tried to build a, a, a box that dropped in the tank of a water, uh, of a toilet to save water called the wet rock. Yeah, we were that. just too early. Um, 
And then kind of fast forward, we did a social media platform to take on PayPal. It's still is kind of out there floating around. And 2018, we moved into the world of, I'll, I'll put air quotes, blockchain, because there wasn't a lot of blockchain and nobody knew what it was. And the conflation of cryptocurrency and blockchain and Bitcoin all was kind of jumbled together. And I thought I understood it better than most people in the world. So we jumped into that about 2018. Got it. Right. And just for the audience to know, uh, your podcast is called the Bullseye Guy podcast. Yeah, the and Bullseye you have, Guy. You also have a YouTube channel too. Um, so let's talk more about the company Mineta Pro and what it okay. does and how you kind of developed it. Yeah. So the, the idea, again, goes all the way back to 2000, 2001, which is interesting. The old days of barter. I've got chickens. You've got milk. Let's trade. If you want chickens, I don't want milk. I need portability. I need currency. The word Mineta comes from the seashell, the first forms of portable currency ever, not the Lido Roman shell. The seashells in the Mineta world, the, the cowrie shells is what became currency. And that's what enabled barter to move from trade of equal value to portability. We looked at big companies and let's just fast forward to today. Some of the largest companies in the world trade assets. And media companies, right? You're a podcaster. I don't know if you've ever traded out media, but a big company like WPP will trade advertising for Ford cars mm -hmm. or Merck will trade shipping for computers. You know, so these companies trade, but if you want equal value, they become very difficult. I'll give you cars, but I don't want computers. So what's Mineta Pro? It's like a global Amazon but the difference between Amazon, Amazon's a single sign-on, username and password. It's a business to consumer platform primarily. It's an $84 average transaction. That's Amazon sort of in a shell. We built an enterprise level marketplace, meaning divisions, departments, hierarchies, rights and authorities. Can this guy buy, sell, trade? It's more like Alibaba. It, Alibaba doesn't even have corporate hierarchies. Alibaba is, Alibaba's business to business on the Alibaba side, but it's still smaller businesses. What we built is enterprise. If you're a big company and you've got divisions and then this division has departments, that department might just be authorized to sell an asset. They're not the procurement department. We built a system where the sales guy can sell an asset, earn an electronic credit. It's called a G-Buck, a business usage credit. That credit can move around to procurement and it becomes portable to buy tires, batteries, parts. So we created a close, it's technically a closed loop, multi-party trading platform. Sell an asset, get credits, use credits, buy something else. Interesting, and the G-Buck is, you told me, I think before, this is equivalent to a dollar. So one G-Buck is a dollar? Yeah, when I tried to do this years ago, I called it a global business usage currency because I'm like, oh, we're trying to build a currency. We softened it down this go around. So the G-Buck stands for a business usage credit. And the easy way, Ray, I try and get people to understand is, imagine if you had a $1,000 store credit in Amazon. It could be called Amazon Bucks, it doesn't matter. It's Amazon a store does that, credit. yeah. That's like a gift that, card or and, something. And, and, and for part of your audience, it's not a blockchain, it's not a token, it doesn't fluctuate, it can't be stolen, it's not traded on exchange, it's a credit that can only be spent in the network. Our G-Buck equals a US dollar. So if I'm trying to sell cars, I list them in US dollars. But what we did to, to flatten the curve globally and the flatten the world is if you're in Brazil, 
If you list an asset, you say, oh, in US dollars, I'm in Brazil. Today, I want a million US dollars. So if you called me, Ray, and I'm selling bananas, I say, today, the real to the dollar's worth eight to one. I want a million dollars. If you call me back three days later, that million dollars may change because of what's called currency fluctuation. The price goes up and down when the currency changes to the dollar. Sure. So what I did is I inverted in our system, we float a price. So if I'm in Brazil, I put it in today for a million dollars. You don't call me back three days later to get a new price. The Mineta Pro system automatically floats the price to the currency. So it technically creates, it eliminates what's called arbitrage and hedge. Are you currency. taking? But it's based on a US dollar to, to flatten out the global pricing. So is Mineta Pro taking on that risk then, in case there is some fluctuation in the currencies? There's no risk because it's immediate financial settlement. The reason there's risk in traditional ACH SWIFT Fed wires, if I pay you a $10 million, even if I wire it to you, it still takes 24 to 48 hours through the traditional bank network. And that's where that risk comes in on $10 million. A credit system's instantaneous. It's like moving money in a bank account. So the minute you hit sell or buy, it's an instantaneous, immediate settlement of credit. Mm-hmm. You, you have a delivery risk, but the settlement risk isn't there because it's instant, it's immediate financial settlement. It's technically the only kind of system in the world that would give you instant financial settlement because it's not even blockchain. Blockchain would still have a lag. Even if we put the credit on a blockchain, you'd have to have some validations. This is immediate financial settlement. So there's there's no risk to the seller. It just adjusts the price. Is there a risk to any business if they have an account with NetaPro and then let's say for whatever reason, Mineta Pro is unable to uh, sustain its operations, would they lose that? Would they just be able to pull out their G-Bucks before or how does that work? Yeah, so the credits stay in the system. Really what we've done, and, and I get to that point, if there's a point of failure at Mineta Pro, there's some risk, but we've inverted the process. Again, the bullseye is very specific. Um, and if I can, I'm gonna go through the bullseye to back into your question, right? When we looked at target companies, I looked at the 2000 largest companies in the world based on assets, not sales, employees, locations, asset, crap that they own. Mm -hmm. Then I said, what are the top 10 industries that have a history of trading? It's oil and gas, natural resources, automotive, computers, media, you know, airlines, hotels, there's 10, 987 companies in the world that are the largest that have a history of trading. Then we found evidence of 88 articles of histories of these companies trading together. Now I have a company, a name, 47 companies that I have direct access to. I picked the top 10. But my point of the question to you is the companies we're going after already have a history of trading with their other partners. So I'm not trying to bring them some new market and say, oh, I've got a bunch of new buyers and sellers. It's Ray, you're Ford, you're already trading with 300 companies in your supply chain. Rather than doing it manually, here's a cool marketplace tool that gives you a lot of flexibility, functionality, and then we haven't even got into the blockchain component, but what we do within the blockchain of the Mineta Pro system Hmm. provides tremendous value for the companies. Yeah, let's get into that. And I know that recently you've been 
trying to get into the healthcare space or healthcare mm-hmm. sector. So if you could talk to me a little bit about what you're doing in healthcare and what clients you are working with to onboard onto your system. Yeah, so I'll, let me, I'll do the blockchain component in Mineta Pro because then when we talk about healthcare and supply chain, you'll see sort of where it works. Sure. Mineta Pro itself is Mineta Pro Marketplace. So, so it's MinetaPro.com. It's, it's a marketplace like Amazon. No blockchain, nothing weird, just enterprise marketplace. If you're a company like Ford and you transfer a million dollars worth of cars, if you trade them, your accounting module doesn't get updated. So these big companies run on SAP and Oracle primarily. If they sell a million dollars worth of cars, their inventory systems are updated. If they trade it, hey, Ray, I'm going to give you a million cars, a million dollars, their accounting modules out of compliance. That becomes an issue. If you've ever gone in Amazon and click order history, you can look in your Amazon and you see the order history of everything you've bought. Mm-hmm. That order history doesn't communicate with anything. You can just see it. What we did with blockchain is we write the order to the IBM hyperfabric. That hyperfabric component can go into SAP and Oracle and update accounting modules in real time. So if if a company like Ford transfers an asset, we use a blockchain tool to number one, update that inventory. And then two, we use a different blockchain tool to write a smart contract, not not a movable one. Just we write an audit trail to prove the asset was transferred to a third party. You can't just take a million dollars worth of inventory out of a public company and not prove it went somewhere. I see. And, and then all the parties are able to access that data anytime they Correct. want. It's, it's still a private ledger. It's not per, it's it's permission, but it's not the permission is we approve people in the system. Mm-hmm. But the blockchain invoicing is built into what we've created. There is no private nodes. All of these complications people in the blockchain world have have, have put in place. It's just part of our solution. It's just it's a more elegant solution than an access database and a DocuSign contract. Okay. All right. So to supply chain, Mineta Pro Marketplace has two buttons. One says buy, one says sell. Like if I want to sell something, I click a button, add a product. If I want to buy or search, I can find things. COVID comes along. The president announced a supply chain task force. Part of the supply chain, to be very clear, is front-end procurement buying PPE, who is the suppliers? Are they validated? Can you get stuff out of the country? How do you accelerate an air bridge? All that stuff's great. Our system is called EAMS, the Emergency Asset Management System. Same, Same type of system we launched in New York. We're looking more at the back end of what's available and idle. Meaning if New York's over here with Cuomo saying, I need 30,000 respirators. You can't buy 30,000 respirators quick enough. You can't repurpose Ford to make them quick enough. But you might be able to find some other state that has extras sitting around that you could loan or borrow. Mm -hmm. So Cuomo, day after day, is begging for respirators. Let me borrow them. Going on over here is Gavin Newsom, a buddy of mine. California had 7,100 respirators. They're like, oh, we should find out if we had more. They did a phone audit, 400 hospitals calling around. They found 4,400 respirators they didn't even know they owned. Forgot about them. 
sitting in a warehouse, batteries expired. And all of a sudden, here's Gavin going, hey, I've got extra respirators. I'll loan them to you. Our system, EAMS, the emergency system, accomplishes all of that in a way they've never had. It allows divisions, departments, locations, hospitals say, here's the, the respirators I have that are available. A guy over here in New York says, I need respirators. If you could go into a marketplace kind of like an, an eBay or an Amazon and say, show me everybody has respirators available and sort by location to find the ones that are closest and acquire that respirator. Our system shows all of that. Now, when the respirator is acquired, we write the blockchain contract. So California, when they loan that respirator, can get it back. This is what happens in disasters. People are like, oh, I want to help. They're sending equipment. They're sending all kinds of, nobody knows where anything is. They don't know what's available. When it's over, they don't know how to get it back. And within Mineta Pro, remember we have the GBUC credit. In Eames, same thing, we call it a crisis credit. So now if California lists respirators, they loan them to New Jersey mm -hmm. and they earn crisis credits that are audit credits that they can use to get reimbursed from the state or federal government. So wow. we built this really cool, elegant solution. The only reason I know how to do it is we did it after September 11th, but the, the software is really interesting. Most of the government people are reactive, not proactive. I so they're, they're, they don't want to pay for things that they don't think they're going to need. Or they're like California. They buy 4,000 respirators and they're in a warehouse and they don't work. So, so for yeah. us, the supply chain to me is not front-end procurement, PPE. A lot of people are working there. I like the back end of how do you find things that are idle, redeploy them. That's better faster, cheaper, and safer. It's safer to redeploy a respirator that you already own than to buy them brand new from somebody that just started making them. Of course, yeah, it's definitely cheaper. Uh, if it's something that's been purchased, you know, before. But what kind of feedback did you get from like Governor Newsom or California State when they were using Typical government stuff. And what I mean by that is, so Gavin's a friend of mine. I, I bullseye. I start top down. Gavin refers me down to David Duncan. David refers me to Richard, another guy in government. He loves it, thinks it's great, but they can't do it in the middle of COVID. Mm. You know, they, he's like, oh my God, we could use this for 400 hospitals and the police and fire and Department of Transportation for, because what we built works for the next hurricane, it works for a flood, a fire. There's always natural disasters. But right now we're stuck in conversations with the guys in California trying to figure out when we can get to Sacramento. I brought in a guy named Dennis Kucinich, who's great. He was two-time presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. We started conversations within Mike Pence's group and those are ongoing. It's just typical government is if you're not in that two or three week window when they're just making quick decisions. Then you're back in the three P's of government, people, process, and politics. Yeah. And right now we're stuck in people, process, and politic conversations. Yeah, I hear that. And it's it's just super difficult to make a technological change in someone's process during yep. a pandemic. So I, I get yeah. their hesitation, um, but I wish it sounds like you know such a great platform. It's unfortunate they aren't able to use it. 
Well, the good news is we're still, the conversations are still ongoing. And because, Ray, we've targeted, again, my bullseye, we've targeted states who have a high propensity of natural disasters. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're in light discussions. They just started with Alabama, which has a ton of disasters. Tennessee just started. I've got the chief of staff for West Virginia in an hour. A friend of mine's taking me to Mitt Romney's son for Utah. Utah's going through these massive fires right now because they, the fires happen with somebody in, you know, fireworks. So the conversations are ongoing where we're not going in under just COVID supply chain. We're saying this is a tool for disaster management supply chain. So if there's a fire and you need tires or batteries or pumps, that's great. Or you might need more respirators. You might need extra masks that aren't being used. Like we, we want to be a disaster management solution. COVID just sort of opened the reticular activators where people are looking for stuff right now. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Civic, a San Francisco-based blockchain startup that raised $43 million dollars in 2017 in an initial coin offering has partnered with Circle Medical. Circle Medical is a well-connected affiliate of UCSF Health, a San Francisco hospital. The partnership will let employees prove to their employers the results of their most recent COVID-19 tests. The organization plans to also allow users to prove they received a COVID-19 vaccination when it hopefully becomes available. The founder and CEO of Circle Medical says that, quote, traditionally, there's been, for good reason, a kind of Chinese wall between employers and employee health data. And there's not a lot of information, if any at all, that tends to cross over from one side to the other. He adds, I think with COVID, there is a real need on the part of the employer to be able to screen and assess COVID risk before they let people back into the workplace. The solution is called HealthKey by Civic, and it offers employers the ability to create safer working environments by securely verifying employee health status without compromising their privacy. It puts employees in control of their digital identities and is future-proof as it can be updated with test results and vaccination records anytime. HealthKey by Civic currently provides support for companies with more than 500 employees. Civic's partner, Circle Medical, will supply testing for interested San Francisco Bay Area companies and additional regional testing partners will be coming online to support the local customers. I think this is a huge development for a digital identity solution to be providing this type of service. There is a clear need for safety in the workplace and employers will need to find a way to mitigate medical liability claims from their employees. I'll be curious to see how widely adopted HealthKey by Civic will become. A link to the reported Forbes article is in the show notes. And now back to our episode with Stephen Mead, CEO of Mineta Pro. So you mentioned you're using the Hyperledger Fabric um, well, blockchain protocol. Are you using, are you like applying any other blockchain tools or systems in your platform? No. Okay. No. How is your and, data and, being stored? Like the actual, uh, how is your database managed yeah so I, again i like answering questions but as an entrepreneur i'd like to layer context on rather than just sure. if you were a vc i would answer directly but i like context for for stuff um when we looked at the, how to utilize the blockchain because i've done enterprise software 
I knew SAP and Oracle. I knew how fixed asset modules worked. And I said, okay, we could, as a, as a startup company with Mineta Pro, we could build our own blockchain. And I've got groups, we could have built our own ledgers and permissions and all that. And we would have owned proprietary technology. And if you're raising money, sometimes venture guys want you to have proprietary technology. Or I said, we can accelerate into the market. We looked at Stellar. We looked at Graphene. My buddies run EOS. We looked at EOS. Um, what do you think about what EOS? I, huh? What do you think about EOS as a platform, as like a enterprise level? Um, I, I, I think they've lost their way, and I don't know where they're going to end up. My buddy David used to run it. Brock's a friend of mine. When when they started it, I used to describe EOS. I used to describe Ethereum as a first-generation iPhone. Okay. I was like, hey, Ethereum's cool. What made the iPhone cool is you could build apps on top of it. Sure. What made Ethereum cool is you could build apps or dApps on top. Right. But Ethereum wasn't scalable. EOS was supposed to be, <clears throat> excuse me, not only scalable, the EOS token was supposed to allow you to buy within the whole community. So the, the theory was it would be like having one token inside of all the apps on your iPhone. You wouldn't have to put a credit card in and all these different things to keep updated on all the apps. So that was where it kind of was supposed to go. I, I think they've lost their way now. I don't know where they're going to end up. Um, but, but we looked heavy at using them. I like the guys in the platform. But at the end of the day, my customers for Mineta Pro is Ford, Maersk. I can't go into the largest companies in the world and go, oh, we're a startup on our own blockchain. They, they would have freaked out. So we picked IBM because it's, it's the badge of IBM credibility. When I go to Ford, I'm like, yeah, we built on IBM's blockchain. That communicates to SAP and Oracle. You don't have to do anything. It's already built. I see. Um, let's talk more about the healthcare applications. I feel like you know a lot of my audience are more focused on how blockchain can be applied in the healthcare industry. And uh -huh. I'm just wondering if you have any sort of examples of any healthcare companies that can use Mineta Pro. Well, so the way we looked at, at Eames for healthcare, there, let me, let me, I'll go down a couple different tangents. Number one, Eames for healthcare, when I looked at what was going on with COVID, especially as it related to African-Americans and some of this propensity of people who are, are more adversely affected. And then you've also got people adversely affected, diabetes and obesity, which I grew up in the South. I can throw my Texas accent on if I had to. <laughs> the South is historically underfunded within the government. They're underfunded within healthcare. The population is much more susceptible to not only COVID, but other things medically. Mm -hmm. So Eames for us, we looked at it as a health acceleration platform. If, if a hotspot starts coming up in Mississippi or Alabama for COVID, if that state can get access to equipment that a California or a New Jersey or a Chicago, somebody that has new equipment that's on a better buying cycle, redeploy it down in a matter of days, you can close and accelerate the healthcare gap. So this concept of how do you provide better healthcare in terms of, especially as a pandemic or a natural disaster, to me, they're kind of the same, that the next tornado that rolls through Texas, there's a lot of people that are adversely affected, not only for resources, but also medical care and things like that. How do you scale 
this area of healthcare availability when cities and states have budget constraints. You know, so the blockchain component for us allows states to potentially feel more comfortable loaning an asset that they know they can track and get back. And the blockchain audit trail allows them a tool to get reimbursed. You know, now we think there's ways to accelerate healthcare Mm -hmm. into affected areas, whether it's a a fire, a tornado, or the next COVID outbreak in, in, you know, Dallas, Texas. I see. What types of assets or items do you think would be most best used on this platform? Like you mentioned respirators and what else? Yeah, the healthcare side is real easy. Respirators are a big one because of of costs and specifically to COVID. They're expensive, yeah. Um, Inexpensive. Also supplies. Everybody gets, not everybody, that's pejoratively. People tend to get in this habit of hoarding. Right. So there's a hoarding component for masks. There's a hoarding component for PPE where, you know, every state was competing against themselves to buy. You know, Gavin did a deal with BYD to buy a million or a billion masks. Well, if a state says, hey, I own supplies, whether it's masks, whether it's PPE, whether it's testing kits. And if I don't need them right now, can I loan them and at least get reimbursed? And either go get something else I need or get reimbursed to buy them again because I don't need them right now. But what price should then, they reimburse, right? I think the, the issue has become price gouging. No, though, I, and I appreciate that. What I, what I mean by reimburse is the way that the, the disaster management works is state, the disaster's local, mm-hmm. city. If it rolls to a state disaster, there's state dollars to reimburse for things. And if it's a federal disaster, there's federal dollars. So if California technically loans a respirator, they're supposed to keep track of that on a daily basis. So they can go to the federal government and say, oh, I loan this respirator. I want federal reimbursement. I see. So we're talking about tracking credits to say, oh, I really gave $5 million worth of mass. I can go to the federal government and get reimbursed that $5 million to go buy something again. So it's 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 a it's a niche within the way the state and federal government works for reimbursement. The crisis credits we have allows it to track, but the goal is to get it outside of hoarding. There's two other real unique ones though, right? One, and we see this all the time, is around medical equipment, not respirators, but um, firefighters, EMT, emergency management guys. It ha- happened in New York. You know, there's guys driving across from California with, you know ambulances yeah well and volunteers i'll talk about them both the same way it's like volunteers cuomo and we've got out on our our website eams.network we've got all these clips cuomo was out there saying we asked for volunteers we had twenty thousand volunteers we asked for respirator techs we had four thousand respirator techs they only had a thousand respirators so the problem in a disaster is you have volunteers who want to show up or people that want to help. You you don't need 20,000 people. You need 1,000 people a day for the next 20 days. Or you need 500 people a day for two months. So what our software system Eames does is allows volunteers to say, hey, I'm available. Here's the days. Here's how much my rate is to get charged or reimbursed. And if somebody needs them, they can actually acquire that volunteer or acquire that ambulance or acquire that EMT if and when they need them. 
And if the volunteer is no longer available, they go in the system and click a little button says, we have a button called publish, yes or no. Publish yes means I'm in the search engine, I'm available, here's my hours, here's my expertise. If all of a sudden I'm not available or don't wanna go, I pull myself out of the system. So this redeployment of, of supply chain for me is broader than procurement. It's, it's medical equipment, it's EMT, it's fire, it's volunteers, it's you know lab technicians, it's people who know or have different resources. Again, the, the resource you need is different from flood, fire, hurricane, or the next COVID outbreak. But those things always happen and the medical delivery around it is always a struggle. Got it. Okay. Um, can you describe some like the competitive landscape? Other people must be doing something similar to you. Do you have any direct competitors? Yeah, the, I, I have to be careful on the competitive landscape because right now our competition is basically a couple websites that New York put out there and a spreadsheet that Jared Kushner and his team put out. Uh, and again, it's um, this, this Ray, honestly, this is more of a frustration answer mm -hmm. than anything else. I have software. I don't, I don't want to be back in healthcare management and disaster. Like I'm pulled into it because I know we have something that can help, but we watched after COVID day after day, and we've got all the clips on our site. Here's Cuomo begging for respirators. Let us borrow them. Please donate them. We'll give them back. Here, go to our website. We've solved the problem. Their website was a form you filled out and somebody would call you. That is that competition? I don't know. It's a website. Jared Kushner in the group with a bunch of McKinsey guys that weren't even McKinsey. They were volunteers in their off time because I called the chairman of McKinsey. He knew nothing about it. They built a spreadsheet online. Again, not an enterprise level matching engine blockchain. So, you know, even Brad, Brad Jawar, the guy for, for the current COVID price process, three days ago in front of Congress said, we still don't have a national database of what's available, what's idle, what we own. We're in contact, we being the government said, we're in contact with the hospitals every day. But later on, he said, the way they're in contact is with phone calls calling 400 hospitals a day to see what they have available is not a good competitive solution, but that that's where we are in today's world. So NHS doesn't have anything in London because we're in discussions with them. United States doesn't have anything. Palantir hasn't built anything. We haven't run across anybody in the conversations within the States at the level we're at who said, Oh, I, and I don't mind competition. I've built 11 companies. I've taken three public. Competition sometimes is good. If I'm in there and somebody says, oh, here's your competition. How are you better? Then I'll, I'll go up against how I'm better. When I'm in there presenting what we do and they're like, I've never seen anything like this. I don't even know how I would use it. There, there's not competition because we've been in the industry so long. Everybody, almost everybody jumping in right now at Booz Allen, Hamilton, McKinsey, Jared Kushner, these guys haven't been through a big disaster. The last big, big, big disaster, U.S. was really Katrina. You had Haiti. You had a couple hurricanes that, that Trump and the team managed fairly well that didn't have a you know big land impact. Puerto Rico. So you have you've mentioned that you know you've been in the industry for a while now. Um, what kind of 
like traction do you have? How many users, how many accounts are created on your platform? How much, you know, G bucks are traded on a daily basis? Can you share some of those metrics? Well, so different questions. The Mineta Pro market, which is where the G bucks account for, was just getting ready to go live. We were just coming out of market pre-COVID. We were in pretty diligent discussions, and, and I can mention them because it's not confidential. I, I hope we get them. Uh, we were in com conversations with Maersk through the IBM relationship for Maersk to bring on a lot of their global supply chain. Mm -hmm. um, cool. They do about three to $4 billion a year already of trading excess inventory capacity in the ships. Uh, I had just got back from Dubai. Dubai used to do about $17 billion of corporate trade. I had no idea. And I, I asked, she asked our contacts, what did you guys trade? It was food. Fascinatingly, they traded a lot of food with India and Africa and some of these other ones. So we don't have a lot yet, but my target to your question on how much volume we go through, my target's not to bring on little companies and help. My target is to get a company like Merce that's already doing two or three billion dollars of trading manually and bring their supply chain on as quickly as possible. So those G bucks will be moving among their existing supply network. So if, if I get one or two customers, it'll scale very quickly because it's their supply chain. The emergency one, that's a little more complicated. From 2002 to 2005, we installed the emergency management software in a couple cities. And then over time, they just sort of stopped using it because there wasn't a big disaster. After September 11th, there wasn't anything for years in any big scope. And so again, when COVID happened, I knew that we had some software that the, the Mineta Pro software is almost identical. I knew I could repurpose it again for Eames. So hmm. we don't have anybody in the emergency asset one yet, but the world has only cared about this problem for about seven weeks now. Until, until Trump created a supply chain task force and said, here are the four things we're trying to accomplish. One, buy things better you know, supply chain, air bridge, control the suppliers. The fourth thing on his task force was how can they identify what they already own to better utilize it? Until the government came out with that, you know, sort of modus operandi and, and named an admiral from the Navy to solve that problem, I didn't care because I know they don't, nobody cared or understood it because they didn't know how big a problem it was. Wow, that's interesting. Do you think, you know, after that announcement, has there been a lot of action in getting, you know, companies and states on board with, with this? Uh, again, it kind of goes back to the same thing that we were watching two things in parallel. One, conversations we could get started that we had good access to, but it's, it's like trying to sell somebody a brand new fire engine in the middle of a fire. It's a little, and, and again, that's the difference, proactive versus reactive. We had a software that could be launched in you know under 24 hours, has a five-minute learning curve. It could be done, but the government people are like, oh, we don't know how to get started on it. And at the same time, we were watching, again, in the technology world, I love it, called vaporware. We were watching a lot of people, and again, not to throw names, if they ever want to talk, Jared Kushner, call me. You know, Jared Kushner. And he the, listens the, to this show all the time. So, well, if he does, I sure. can I can help you look better because your McKinsey deal failed. Um, 
you had some guys running around saying they were going to solve the problem. And you had everything from Kushner in Mike Pence's office to Palantir, which is Peter Thiel's group talking about it. But they were approaching it differently. They were using data to identify hotspots. So you could deploy things where we're needed based on hotspots. We have the deployment software. They were using the data analytics, but it got confused because people didn't understand the difference. And then you'd have people on on news every day. Oh, we're going to build a website. We we've got a PPE volunteer website. Donate your mask. Donate. It was a bunch of consumer website people trying to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's again, I'm I'm not a frustrated entrepreneur. I've been through this enough. Selling into government in the middle of a crisis is very difficult. And that's sort of where we are. So we've got conversations going, um, whether or not this remains a a top of mind, I don't know. Even the supply chain PPE stuff, people are are less concerned about it now. We've got a second COVID wave coming out for cases, but the cases aren't converting to hospital stays and death. Mm -hmm. So, you know, within the threat of the government there, there's less concern if the stress isn't on the hospital side. So will anybody care about this conversation six months from now? I don't know. Interesting. Do you think that we're doing a decent job or how do you think we're doing as a country in handling the pandemic? Uh, I, I actually, I think we're doing, I think we're doing well. And especially if, again, I'm not politically correct. I'm politically direct. Fair. And I like looking at numbers, but in January, I was in, I was in seven hotspots in January. I had just come out of Hong Kong in December. I guess that kind of counts. I was in Davos. I was in Zurich. We were in New York twice. My friend that I travel with, a guy named John Sutton, who's one of our advisors, global food architect, was in Wuhan. He's got videos Hmm. in the Wuhan food market of them pouring bat's blood. So we were talking about this problem in January that was pretty interesting. I think where the the government's done reasonably well is China wasn't forthcoming in their information. So if you actually track for a long time, China and the World Health Organization was saying, oh, it's not that bad. There's no person to person transmission. You know, oh, it's contained in Wuhan. We knew that the entire city was getting shut down, which was weird, but that that information wasn't being translated. Then you talk about testing. Again, I'm not a doctor, I have a chemistry degree, but I was always fascinated. They're like, you're not testing enough. The US isn't testing. Well, how do you develop tests on something that didn't exist 90 days ago? How are you supposed to miraculously have 10 million tests sitting around to test a virus that didn't exist that you had never seen the strand on And if you had built a virus test, the reagents would have expired by now. And then you get compared to South Korea. Korea is different. You have to go through the military coming out of Korea. If you and I in the U.S. had to go through military training, we knew that there were biological weapons and chemical agents in North Korea. We knew we might get shot at any time. Our mentality as a country to wear masks and allow ourselves to be tracked and set up for testing 
it's an unfair comparison to the United States to Korea when you actually legitimately look at things in a non-political way. That's an interesting perspective. You're right, because most Americans have never had to fear something like that. They've never even considered this to be possible in most cases. Yeah. But in, in South Korea, in Korea, it's they they have drills on it. They have training. They live you know 13 miles from a guy that might blow them up at any time people have been through the military do you think that you know, america so, should start really um you know building training protocols for schools and for for people and to like figure out to be more they, aware of this sort of thing they 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 do ray and they have it but then they always go through the wayside like i'll mm-hmm, i'll yeah. wade into another really really touchy topic now and i don't want to go off on a tangent because this one's dicey but we we reacted because of school shootings for for years there were these tragedies of school shootings Mm -hmm. so the corrective measure of the government is put school security in put people in that can protect the students well now because of some of the the race things and the riots that are going on they're pulling security back out they used to do tabletop testing at schools for 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 bombs now they don't like the, the government's always just going to wane away from whatever the priority is. So I, I don't I don't have a good answer. I just I've pragmatically watched this stuff through the years and it just people forget about it. We forget about September 11th and the guys that run towards the sound. And now we're trying to defund police again. I'm off like these are interesting things, but no, it's definitely um, these are complex issues and we definitely don't yeah. have the time to cover everything. Uh, but I see where um, where you're going with that. Yeah. So back to your question on the COVID side, the testing to me was always interesting because we're we're doing more testing. And what I what I'm tracking that my own interest is testing's going up. The correlation of people testing positive is going up, but the hospitalizations is actually the same or going down and the deaths are going down. So where's this overlap of, of better data that says we're testing more people? What's the age group? What's the underlying condition? What's the predisposition of people that get hospitalized? And, and it's become political right now around the number of COVID cases. And I've been tested three times. And before anybody gets mad thinking I'm out there getting tests, the first time I was invited because I travel internationally, I got back from Dubai. Mm-hmm. Second time was because LA was giving away free testing, said, please come test so we can get better data. Mm-hmm. And I was negative both. And the third one, I just donated plasma to Cedar Sinai. And part of the donation of blood was free antibody testing and COVID testing. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for doing that. I think that's the, all that data is really helpful. Yeah, because I, I, I want more information where we make better decisions. And the healthcare side is really fascinating, which circles back to where we are. Is if we do have another COVID breakout, in in Mississippi or Alabama or South Texas, and it starts turning into hospitalization. How do you deliver better care? How do you get better access to face shields and respirators and things that the state can't buy or isn't competing against everybody else in a fraudulent market with price gouging? You know, if I could borrow half a million masks from Mississippi and give them back when it's over, that's better, faster, safer, cheaper. So that right. that's when the you say, I think it's interesting. Yeah, when you say mask there, I just want to be clear, you probably mean like uh, 
face shield coverings. I mean, like face, face shields shield. and things right. that could be sanitized and, right. and, and given back. I don't mean. I don't want people to know, think that. And things like that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. For those that can't see, I was doing this on the. Yeah. I was waving my hand up and down on the, <laughs> the screen. Doesn't translate as well to radio <laughs> or podcast. Uh, right. Um, so you have a product basically already built out. Is there any roadmap for the product through 2020 or beyond? Yeah, so they're they're running in parallel. The emergency asset management system. Right, like I said products. we're in conversations with states, and we're 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 going in under the conversation of COVID supply chain, developing and delivering better healthcare, delivering health assets quicker, better, faster, cheaper. But we're also weaving that into the conversation of it being utilized around natural disasters because it's much more likely a tornado, flood, hurricane, fire is going to happen, hopefully before another COVID style, you know, breakout. But so the roadmap for Eames is to find a, we're actually looking at consulting partners who can go sell it for us so we don't have to. You know, we'll let somebody that's already dealing with the government go get the bloody noses and we'll just support the software like SAP does to the consulting firms. And then Mineta Pro, our primary focus marketplace, we've got Stephen Moore, who's who's on the, the administration for, you know, the economic advisor, the former CIO of BlackRock, uh, some pretty interesting guys, the former CMO of Kodak. We got some interesting guys helping sort of figure out how we can onboard those first really big customers. And I don't need that many. I need three, four, five companies that will bring on because they have to bring their supply chain on to have anybody to trade with. So I'm not trying to bring on 300. I, I, I need three, five, 10 at the most. Interesting. Uh, so I do have a few other questions. They're a little bit less related to Mineta Pro. And yeah. um, uh, do you want to add anything else about Mineta Pro or the Eames platform before I kind of move on? To no, I appreciate it. Um, on, on Mineta Pro, if anybody in your audience is out there, the you know, CFOs in big companies, airlines, automotive, you know, Ford, American, WPP, any mm -hmm. CFO, we've got a cool tool that can help make them more money. And on Eames side, we primarily want to go in through um, the, the state governor and the emergency management team within the state. So if anybody that you're dealing with in the healthcare side uh, is dealing with any of the state governors or the emergency management or on these audit trees, we, we'd love to be able to show our software and, and show how it could help them work. Absolutely. What do you believe in that most people you think would disagree with? Uh, I, I've got, again, these are all my bullseye things. So I've, from reading thousands of books, um, I can go through 10 of them really quickly because they're all little phrases. 99% of the things you worry about never happen. So why worry? People are mm -hmm. like, oh, why didn't you worry about it? I'm like, I can't control it. Like, I, I don't worry about stuff. All I can control are my actions and my attitude. If something happens with COVID or this or there's another breakout, all I can, I can control my actions. When I go out, do I wear a mask? Do I wash my hands? I can't control whether or not I catch it if somebody else is sneezing. Right. You know, so 99% of the things you worry about never happen. All I can control my actions and my attitudes. Uh, isolation is a good thing. The minute I say that, people think it's about being alone, like off going on some mountain. Isolation to me is the bullseye. It's about being targeted, specific, and focused. The more 
focused you are on exactly what you want, the company, the title, the person you want to talk to, the more efficiently people can help you. It's actually where people think the more focused you are, you're limiting your options. You're not. You're actually increasing them because if people know I want governors at a state, they'll send me governors at a state versus sending me somebody that's not as relevant. Right. You're, you're increasing the quality, actually, of the like transaction or interaction. Correct. And it's it's called isolation of faces. It's a, it's a, a bullseye funnel. Um, people make decisions emotionally and defend them logically. That's why it's very difficult to talk to people about love and relationships or politics. Are these all listed on the bullseye page? I can definitely add that to the show notes. So our yeah, listeners well, absolutely. can check it out. Yeah, the logo I have there kind of goes through the, the process. Okay. Um, people do more to avoid pain than gain pleasure. If you say it, they doubt it. If they say it, it's true. These are all just sales techniques. The greatest negotiation technique in the world can be taught in a quarter of a second. Okay. And I went round and round with this with a guy named Chris Voss, who's great. Chris has a great book out. He was the number one hostage negotiator for the FBI. And I, and I challenge him. I'm like, I have the best negotiation technique and I can teach it in a quarter of a second. It's like impossible. I was like, all right. And it's basically flinch. Like if you ever watch the guys at Pawn Stars, hey, how much do you want for that cool hat in the background? I want $500. Ooh, yeah. I don't know, Ray. It's crooked. Looks like it's a little faded. You know, always flinch. Even if somebody's offering you more than you want in a deal, still flinch. Because if you don't, they'll think they could have got a better deal. Fair enough. Uh, moving on to my next question. Sure. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it to be implanted? wherever I could answer the phone and talk. So I don't care where, like, I'm not gonna, I don't want this. So probably somewhere up here, like the jawbone, you know, yeah. Bluetooth used to be okay. where I could secretly have conversations and, and tap and answer phone calls. Okay. Uh, so I know that you used to travel a lot, but now that COVID yeah. hit, you're at home, I'm, I'm guessing. Do you miss traveling? No. And I appreciate that question. I told you I would have some jokes on this. So, um, my friends say, oh, you get, to, you, you get to travel a lot. I love traveling. And I say, no, you love vacationing. Mm. I say, I, I don't like traveling. I hate traveling. But you travel. I love traveling. No, you love vacationing. My travel is 9 o'clock on a Thursday, flying to Malta or Rome, landing at 7 a.m., not sleeping 13 hours, getting picked up, three days, no sleep. Like I'm, Business travel is not vacationing. But back to my bullseye again, people go, well, where do you go on vacation? I'm like, I don't. Well, where do you go for fun? I say, I don't go anywhere for fun, but I have fun everywhere I go. <laughs> so what I mean by that, to answer all of the questions together, I've designed my life to get to go to events around the world with the kinds of people I want to meet and am fortunate to be able to get access to. So I don't like traveling per se, but I get to go to Malta four times a year for the events that are there. I go to Ted in Vancouver. I go around the corner in Beverly Hills to the Milken Institute. I used to go to New York for Clinton Global Initiative and the Rockefeller Foundation. And I, I get to go on these really cool events and the cool events aren't usually in Des Moines, Iowa or Omaha, Nebraska. Sure. Where would you, know, you say, so, so you've, you've seen a lot of countries, where would you say is, um, you know, you live in Beverly Hills, right? Uh, Beverly Hills, Chicago, and Malta. 
Got it. And where, like, which, where do you like the most? Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll answer that question. And if you can put this up on your website at some point later, when you said you've been to a lot of countries, there's a great Johnny Cash song called I've Been Everywhere. Sure. I've been to this and that. I yeah, just I watched did a that video, video you had on you YouTube. Did? Yeah. Yeah, I did a video montage of the places I've been just the last two years. And it's like Hong Kong, Tokyo, Malta, London, Barcelona, on and on and on and on and on. Um, the place I like the most out of everything is probably Monaco. Hmm. Just it's it's beautiful. It's fascinating. I'm fortunate. A friend of mine, Nicholas Frankel, runs this thing called My Yacht Group. So he does these yacht parties at the Formula One with Prince Albert and Super Yacht Show. And it, it, the, the city's amazing. The events I'm fortunate to attend, the people that go that you get to meet, just the, it's on top of a hill. You can walk around. It's like. Monaco is probably the coolest out of all of them. I mean, um, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's it's really amazing, and there's different ways to do it. We've got some ways, and Davos is cool as as a as an event and a location. I couldn't live in Davos, but yeah, Monaco out of all of them for for a myriad of reasons. Very cool. Well, Stephen, I really do appreciate your time. This is really fascinating. I think, you know, you've got a lot of things going on here, so I'll be following your work. Uh, do you have any final takeaways for the audience here today? Yeah, if I could, especially if you're, and I, the audience is, is healthcare, but it's also entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. The bullseye system that I've created, if anybody wants it, it's all out there. It's free content because one of the things I do is I love helping other people be successful at what they're already doing. But one of the techniques that everybody can use is if you figure out as an entrepreneur, and I've got my hands up like a bullseye, you can't see it, but just imagine one in your head. What's the emotional value of what you do that's cool? That's the outside of the bullseye. The next ring in is what are the industries you're going after? Even, even with you, Ray, if you said, here's what I do that's cool with my, my podcast, and here's the industries I really wanna go after. Mm -hmm. And here's the companies within those industries where I'd love to interview somebody. And here's the title. And here are the five people by name I'd love to interview. And that those names could be the most amazing names in the world. If you use that system, somebody will go, oh, I know that guy. I'll introduce you. Hmm. So, so teaching people how to be more specific and structured and what you do as an entrepreneur is irrelevant. What you need is important. And what you need is usually defined by the person you need to talk to. Nobody knows who their people are. They, they don't spend the time themselves to figure out what or who they need. They're like, oh, I do healthcare this or that. No, if I can leave anything with anybody, be specific, be targeted, be focused, and people can help you more if they like you. Great words. I, I totally agree. I think that's really helpful for the audience. And I think this has been a really interesting conversation. So again, thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.